This lecture will discuss the emergence and evolution of the corporate identity systems designed in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Many of the key figures we've seen in previous lectures will make a reappearance, an indication of the endurance and flexibility of their skills and styles. But before we jump in, let's take a quick look at what the term corporate identity actually means. Many people, even designers, often confuse or interchange the terms logo, identity, and brand. But although they're all part of the brand, they're not quite the same thing. Let's take the logo, for example. A logo is simply a symbol, wordmark, or a combination of the two that exclusively represents an organization. If we were to look at a company or other organization as a person, their logo would be like their face. It's their most unique and recognizable outward feature. And if it's especially attractive or interesting, or if you see it often, it's something you generally will remember. But it doesn't tell the whole story or even necessarily give you a glimpse of who that person really is. You know the Walmart logo, but if you had no other knowledge of the company, what would it really reveal? Not much more than the suggestion of a sunny disposition and the fact that it had a makeover in 2008, really. On the other end of the spectrum is the brand. A brand is like the entire essence of a person, their inner and their outer self. It includes not only how they look, but their history, their relationships, their values, their aspirations, the way they walk, talk, and think all the things that differentiate from or connect them to other people. The choices that they make are based on the sum of all those things. It's the same with a brand. It has a history, a voice, a look, a certain way of communicating. It even has relationships and makes connections. It's also what connects that company to its employees, partners, customers, and competitors. It includes the logo and the corporate identity, but as the sum of the entire brand's personality or essence, it also drives the organizational decisions they make by documenting the strategy, the mission and vision, the demographics, and so much more. In a large organization like Walmart, all of these things are documented in the brand manual so they can be adhered to by anyone who has to make a decision that affects the brand's marketing, look, feel, tone, or more. In Walmart's case, their current logo was redesigned in 2008 to show outwardly that the brand itself had changed from promoting cheap stuff to being a company that strives to use innovative and fair marketing strategies. Now, to be fair, this is what they were attempting to communicate. Now, in their new brand manual, that change was documented to extend to their market positioning, their personality, their voice and their tone, and their public image. Now, that public image was designed to communicate the brand's new focus in every way a potential customer might be exposed to the brand. A commercial, a gift card, a shopping bag, a road sign, Keeping that look cohesive and centered around the brand's new, caring, optimistic, innovative, authentic personality required 
a comprehensive new corporate identity system. A corporate identity, sometimes referred to as a visual identity or brand identity, falls somewhere between the logo and the brand. It's more than a face, but less than the whole person. It would be comparable to a person's public image. So their hair, their clothes, their shoes, their grooming, their accessories, the way they speak in public, anything you could see if you pass them on the street. It's an outward expression of their inner self. Or in the case of a corporate identity system, it's the visible, audible, customer-facing expression of the brand itself. The identity system drives design decisions. It includes a logo, but might also include typefaces, colors, letterhead and business card design, signs, commercials, slogans, as well as a lot of technical details about how the logo should and should not be applied. In order to work well, the entire system must be cohesive and unified. It's an incalculably large part of an organization's brand, but it wasn't always that way. The concept behind the logo is by no means a new one. Its history goes all the way back to the emergence of the pictogram. By the 1400s, a trademark had become a symbol of an individual's professional qualifications or skills. For thousands of years, potters inscribed their personal marks on the earthenware they created. If one potter made better pots than another, naturally his mark held more value than his competitors. Silversmiths, traders, and merchants all had a hallmark or a stamp. Stonemasons chiseled their mark onto a cornerstone of a cathedral or a building and were often sought after by name. Kings, Nobles and knights had seals, crests, and coats of arms that depicted their lineage or their family motto, even their aspirations. The rod of Asclepius on a physician's sign that signified that the doctor was a well-trained practitioner of the medical arts. Simple graphics such as the caduceus carried so much socioeconomic and political weight by the 16th century that European government officials created a specific registry just to regulate and protect that growing number of trademarks that was used by craft guilds. Religions created some of the most recognized identity marks, the Christian cross, the Judaic star of David, the Islamic crescent moon. The concept of visually trademarking one's business spread widely throughout the Industrial Revolution as non-agricultural enterprises flourished and competitors multiplied. Customers' awareness of brands and their reputations began to boom. Logo use became a mainstream part of identification and over time, it held more power than being just a simple identifier. After World War II, the economy was booming, people were spending, and companies were growing. Many believed that the outlook for the post-war capitalist economy would be unending growth and prosperity. In the 1950s and 60s, people believed that the American corporation was the key to that prosperous future, not only for the nation, but for themselves as well. And it's easy to see why. In the 50s, 
Corporations embodied the values and the ethics that were typical of the time. Conformity, order, clear hierarchy and power structures, and a sense of security, both occupationally and financially. Employees expected to work at the same corporation for their entire career. With hard work, an employee could climb the corporate ladder all the way from the mailroom to CEO, slowly and gradually providing a better life for themselves and their family. Now, as companies grew and evolved, so did their needs and challenges. Before the 1950s, corporate identity was a fairly informal concern. Different parts of the company often created their own versions of the company logo and were pretty unrestricted in their design choices. A group of 10 executives might have 10 distinctly different letterhead designs. But as corporations grew and expanded, the lack of visual consistency became a problem. Think of how you'd feel about a person whose face looked different every time you saw it. It would be confusing, and it would probably make it difficult for you to trust or feel really connected to that person. It's very similar to the customer experience. If Target had a different logo, different color, or different typeface for every commercial, sign, or magazine ad, it would be increasingly difficult to recognize, trust, and be loyal to that brand among a growing number of competitors. And imagine the printing and purchasing nightmare it would be. Kind of hard to keep track of the company budget if Barb in the women's department and Jim in accounting had their business cards designed, printed, and purchased from completely different companies. Good design is good business was the graphic designer's new motto, and more forward-thinking corporate leaders understood the need to develop corporate design programs to help shape their company's reputations for quality and reliability. Creating a cohesive identity program solved multiple problems. It became, for one, a means of making complex organizations seem like a single entity. Functionally, for example, an entire company now used one business card or one letterhead design, which allowed for centralized purchasing of printing and reducing costs. Customers could easily recognize the company no matter what product, service, or media outlet they were confronted with. Design decisions were streamlined as art directors and designers no longer had to spend hours in meetings deciding what color or what typeface to choose for which ad. And an identity program could unify thousands of employees and even increase stock values. Companies began to present a consistent, unified look and message designed to be distinctive, attractive, and memorable. The visual corporate identities developed during the 1950s went beyond trademarks to produce consistent design systems and advertising campaigns that projected a cohesive image for corporations that were expanding into a national and multinational presence. Not incidentally, the logo types and other identifying features of these campaigns did not rely on any particular language, but drew on the universal language of graphic design, meant to be legible throughout an international network of communications. Logos were hard-edged and simple. Reproduction quality was variable from a well-printed brochure to a low-end newspaper ad. Sharp and clean forms work best across the spectrum of print, broadcast, 
and other applications. Large-scale identity systems introduce the identity manual to guide the creation and execution of various visuals. These guidelines maintained a cohesive system with a set of rules for usage. They were distributed to creative departments and outside agencies to maintain a singular vision in the execution of any visuals that were related to the brand. Some corporations went to extremes to maintain a cohesive voice. In one instance, all the executives were required to wear white shirts and black ties. No personal artifacts were allowed on the desk, and a template existed to make sure everyone's desk lamp was at the exact same angle. A well-designed corporate identity could reposition a company in a new market or medium, like CBS did with their identity redesign in 1951. The Columbia Broadcasting System's new mark declared a move from radio broadcasting to television, which was exploding. From 16,000 sets right after World War II, the U.S. audience would own more than 90 million sets in the 1960s. CBS moved to the forefront in corporate identity due to the leadership of its president, Frank Stanton, who understood the potential of art and design in corporate affairs, and William Golden, the CBS art director for almost two decades. He brought uncompromising visual standards and a keen insight to the communications process. It was Golden who devised and developed the distinctive eye-shaped logo. Driving through Pennsylvania Dutch country, he was inspired by the Amish hex symbols that were in the shape of a human eye painted on the barns. The symbol of the eye immediately resonated with the idea of the camera's eye. The bold, simple black shape was unmistakable, whether in print or on a flickering television screen. The logo is one of the most successful trademarks of the 20th century. Another landmark in corporate design under Golden in 1945 was the hiring of the first African-American designer to a prominent creative position in a major corporation. George Olden, the grandson of a slave, was hired to establish the CBS graphics department and design on-air visuals for its new television division. Olden became a prominent part of defining the early development of television broadcast graphics for this brand new medium. To overcome the technical limitations of early television, Olden designed on-air graphics using simple symbolic imagery with an emphasis on concepts that quickly captured the essence of each program. After Golden died in 1959, Lou Dorfman, the art director, took over as the creative director. Dorfman's design approach combined logical communication with imaginative problem solving, presented in a straightforward and exciting manner. He evolved the identity with a singular typeface, CBS Dido, and the black and white palette. Dorfman proved that a strong identity system could be varied and exciting across a wide range of materials. High quality solutions to individual communications problems enabled him to project an exemplary image for the corporation. Like Golden, Raymond Louis recognized the importance of comprehensive design systems and left an indelible mark on America's history of visual styling. His streamlined aesthetic, suggesting speed, efficiency, and modernity, 
can be seen across a range of industrial products, packaging, architecture, interiors, and corporate identities. He changed the way industrial designers engaged with corporate design culture by broadening the application of an identity over entire industrial and visual campaigns. For example, identity designs for blue chip companies such as BP, Shell, Exxon, Nabisco, and Lucky Strike were expanded to include packaging or industrial products. Nowadays, the alternative is unthinkable. A tiny toy car is far more recognizable and desirable in its distinctive Hot Wheels packaging than it would be without it. Louis also initiated a study of his audience, the public, as he aimed to define their needs and wants. This analysis affected the way he introduced designs into the consumer culture. With respect to his corporate identity work, he said, I am looking for a very high index of visual retention. We want anyone who has seen the logotype, even fleetingly, to never forget it. That approach, which we refer to today as demographic and ethnographic research, continues to be a valuable part of developing a memorable or sticky brand today. We started this campaign, this company was a generation earlier. Graphic designers' roles had been limited to layout, composition, and style choices for print design. A corporate identity system expanded a designer's role from only designing a logo to creating an overall branded look, and many American designers embraced it as a major design activity. Now their work involved large-scale, coordinated communication campaigns that not only maintained the identity of a corporation, but also added value to its products through symbolic investments in this identity. Slogans, catchphrases, logotypes, and other compact messages made the corporation seem like an individual entity with a voice and a personality. Paul Rand, Lester Beale, and Saul Bass, as well as design firms such as Lippincott Margulies and Shermayef and Geismar, left an indelible mark with their inventive and memorable creations. Strong individual designers who put their personal imprint on a client's designed image led the first phase in the development of post-war visual identification. After playing a pivotal role in the evolution of American graphic and advertising design during the 1940s and early 50s, Paul Rand became more involved in trademark design and visual identification systems in the mid-50s, designing several of the period's most recognizable marks. His work embodied the aesthetic and ethos of an emerging international corporate culture, Rand distilled the principles of modernism into the very picture of formal efficiency and functionality. Rand recognized the power of an efficient approach. He realized that to be functional over a long period of time, a trademark should be based on unique, timeless, universal shapes. He was a proponent and pioneer of shortening a company name to an acronym, as he did with his first major rebranding project for international business machines. Until the 1950s, IBM had never been known as a purveyor of style, but rather, like Henry Ford, had made 
functionalism the focus of their product line. But two things happened early in the decade that changed IBM's approach. First, the new CEO, Thomas Watson Jr., realized that IBM's sprawling business lacked a consistent style, especially in comparison to their main competitor, the Italian office machine company, Olivetti. Second, the IBM executive office tower in New York City was just steps away from the Museum of Modern Art, where a successful show called Olivetti Design and Industry had been guest curated by Leo Leone. The show featured four beautifully designed typewriters in a pointed visual statement about the need for good taste even in unglamorous utilitarian objects. IBM and Watson took note and hired Rand to reinvent the company's image. For IBM, Rand achieved a timeless quality in the logotype as it evolved over a period of nearly three decades. All the modifications introduced were quite subtle at first. The typeface is the main point that makes the 1946 version of the logo different from the ones that appeared later. When Rand was commissioned by IBM in 1956, he simply replaced the heavy, stuffy typeface with another slightly quirkier slab serif. Based on the typeface City Medium, which was designed by George Trump in 1930, it was more unified, harmonious, and legible. Rand's version was customized with longer serifs and large square counters in the B. Still, Rand wasn't completely happy with the logo. He didn't like the shape and rhythm. After more than a decade of experiments, he eventually unveiled his new logo in 1967. For the new logo, he had updated the mark by adding outlines, striped fragmentation, and tonal manipulations to further unify the three forms and transform the dated modernity of Trump's typeface into letter forms that suggested information processing, automated office work, or the scan lines of a computer monitor. The reworked insignia looked more dynamic, suggesting a better harmony between the characters. IBM, the logo suggests, is a smooth, functioning system in which all information and activity stream with seamless coordination. But in 1972, he reworked the logo once again, reducing the 13 stripes to just eight for a more open, clean look and feel. Each step of that evolution was accompanied by a style manual and a wide array of applications from stationery to packaging. Rand's uncompromising attitude toward stylization was well suited to the demands of a company committed to uniformity across its many operations and offices. Among Rand's other trademark solutions of this period, were the 1959 redesign of the Circle W Westinghouse trademark. Westinghouse, a multinational maker of electrical products, had overlapped the use of different logos since its beginnings in the late 19th century. The company needed a new logo to unite the various branches and subdivisions internationally. Rand again relied on elements from a previous design, in this case, preserving the letter W and the line underscoring it. 
The new logo featured the letter W made up of three dots and four lines that form a letter with the suggestion of the format of an electrical circuit board evoking wires and plugs, electronic diagrams and circuitry and molecular structures. It is notable that the logo, which seems rather unadventurous when compared to its contemporaries, especially with the holdover lozenge under the letter W, was actually deemed too strikingly abstract by many of the Westinghouse executives and almost never made it into production. When he redesigned the United Parcel Service's identity in 1961, Rand simplified both the name and the logo into a mark that would last for over 40 years. Nothing about the design was random. The proportions were based mainly on the golden ratio and the lines were clean and even. He kept the shield from the old logo and removed the over-designed lettering in the ribbon. He then streamlined the shield and emblazoned it with bold, unstressed sans-serif initials. Finally, he topped the shape with a simple rectangle and a whimsical bow shape to communicate the idea of parcels, which were often then tied with string or twine instead of packing tape. One of the reasons that Rand's logos are so timeless is because he understood the universal language of geometry and the risk of trendy design looking dated and becoming obsolete. After the success of the new CBS identity, their competitor, the American Broadcasting Company, was forced to refine its own. In 1965, Rand revisited the technique of radical reduction continuing the use of abbreviation from the company's name. He reduced each letter to its elemental geometric shape, informed by the shape and case of Herbert Bayer's universal alphabet back at the Bauhaus. Rand's use of universal for ABC's logo represents possibly the best example of the international style being used in corporate design. Bayer's lettering was named universal for a reason. His belief was that simplified geometric forms were the basis for a new style that would unite all people in a utopian future. The mark is a series of almost identical circles in the negative spaces, the letter forms, and the containing shape. Like the CBS logo, it could be clearly identified even on a blurry screen or in small print across a variety of different applications. 50 years later, ABC is still using the timeless mark. Its simplicity is one of the reasons for its longevity. When ABC was sold in the late 1980s, the new owners planned to update Rand's design, but were unable to decide on a suitable replacement. After ABC, Rand would go on to produce dozens of iconic logos that defined four decades of products, services, and brands. There's a famous anecdote about his production of the next logo for Steve Jobs. In 1986, Jobs asked Rand to come up with a few options, and Rand responded, No, I will solve your problem for you, and you will pay me. You don't have to use the solution. If you want options, go talk to other people. Rand billed Jobs $100,000 for the logo, and Jobs loved it. He even reproduced the concept book as a gift for others. Now, I don't necessarily recommend this strategy, at least as a new designer, at least 
not until you're a legend like Paul Rand. Sadly, the last corporate identity Rand designed before his death was for the Enron Corporation. Originally perceived as simple and bold when it was created in 1996, the diagonally oriented combination of the company's name with a large sans serif E in red, green, and blue was referred to as the multicolored tilted E. It accurately reflected the optimism and high aspirations of the company's CEO, who believed the logo and the accompanying ad campaign would successfully secure their position as a leader in the business world. But in 2002, after a fraud scandal collapsed the company, that same logo took on a whole new meaning. It was renamed the Crooked E to emphasize the criminality the tilted letter came to represent. It became the decade's most powerful example of the corporate anti-logo, and it was largely because of this debacle that graphic designers paused to consider the ethical implications of their power in shaping public perception. Saul Bass's mastery of elemental form can be seen in the trademarks produced by his firm, many of which became cultural icons. Bass believed a trademark must be readily understood, yet possess elements of metaphor and ambiguity to attract the viewer again and again. His logos were generally bold, simple, and usually used just one or two colors. Many of them have endured without much revision to this day. Quaker Oats, Kleenex, The United Way, Laurie's Foods, Dixie, Minolta, just to name a few. Saul Bass's identity for the American Telephone and Telegraph Company and Associated Company's Bell System, eventually reduced to simply AT&T, is a good example of progressive simplification evolving into a masterful icon. Bass's firm at the time, Saul Bass, Herbie Ager & Associates, created the famous Bell symbol for the nationwide phone monopoly in 1969. The first AT&T Bell System logo, created in 1889, depicted a bell in a square frame consisting of three squares of different sizes, each slightly smaller than the previous one. The changes that happened to the logo in the 1900s transformed the square frame into a round shape of a seal, but preserved the shape of the bell inscribed with the name of the company. The bell, circle, and company were progressively simplified from 1900 to 1964, when even the most minimal version began to look dated and cluttered. Saul Bass and his agency, long respected in the industry for strong, simple, memorable solutions, were a natural fit. The research Bass's team put into the identity before ever putting pencil to paper is an enduring testament to the necessity of investigation in the design process. In a 27-minute long pitch video, Bass argued that a drastic change might create confusion and decrease customer recognition. Put any kind of a bell inside a circle and people will recognize it as the bell system. Watch. He elaborated on the exploration of shape and form, the search for simplicity, strength, and style. Next. We explored all possible bell forms, searching for the most up-to-date expression, emerging finally with a bell that has strength and impact, and above all, 
the look of today. What you see here is just a small clip of the video Bass presented to the Bell executives to pitch the new identity system. Remarkable for its time, its narrative, style, and visual effects speak to Bass's extensive experience in filmmaking. It begins with an overview of the changing times in the 60s to set up the context. Then Bass goes into a short lesson on branding and logo design to state the problem. Some people in our society feel regimented. We must respond to new needs. Since 1960, 38 of the 100 top Fortune industrial companies had to make a change, a major updating change in each of their Transitioning to an explanation of the rationale for his solution at about 12 minutes in. Certain visual forms can remain contemporary over long periods of time. Now, if you're really interested, you'll find the link to the entire video at the bottom of this week's discussion board. It's well worth taking a few minutes to review, and if you're really, really interested, there's also a link to a two-hour in-depth exploration of the entire Bell AT&T logo history. The new logo's clean, economical shape got rid of all the small and unnecessary elements. The Bell's form took on a modern reductiveness bordering on the surreal. The optional word mark, which was flexible to accommodate various subsidiaries, aspired to the simplicity and directness of a sans-serif letter form, similar to the clean forms of Helvetica. But one of the logo's most remarkable features was that the logo was entirely recognizable without any words at all. It also took on AT&T's signature blue to symbolize their sky-is-the-limit optimism for the future. As a pictogram, it was, perhaps without equal, in the United States. Bass's vision for the new corporate identity is all-encompassing, from vans and trucks to uniforms and directories and phone booths. An article introducing the new logo in 1969 described how crisp blue and yellow stripes will mark the new design for vehicles separating the white heat-reflecting top from a gray-green bottom. The revised bell seal will be used with simple, easier-to-read lettering to identify the various bell companies and will appear on stationery and phone bills. According to AT&T, the bell system redesign was the largest corporate re-identity program in the U.S. ever. The new corporate identity covered 135,000 Bell System vehicles, 22,000 buildings, 1,250,000 phone booths, and 170 million telephone directories. It achieved a remarkable 93% recognition rate in the United States, up from 71% prior to the redesign. The Saul Bass Bell logo is gone now, replaced by the Globe logo that he also redesigned in 1983 
As a result of continuous anti-monopoly lawsuits against AT&T and the subsequent breakup of the Bell system, the sphere relied on the principle of closure defined by lines implying connection around the globe. Variations in the line width caused the globe to appear to spin when the logo was animated for television in 1984. The new logo continues to symbolize the company's international reach and technological innovation. A prominent modernist poster designer in the 1930s, by the 1960s, Lester Beale had joined Bass and Rand in the rush to create new modern logos and identity systems. He pioneered corporate identity programs for many corporations, including Martin Marietta, Connecticut General Life, and the International Paper Company. Bill worked with co-designer Richard Rogers to create a new logo for the International Paper Company as early as 1960. International Paper had become one of the largest paper companies in the world by 1960, but its logo was extremely dated and cluttered. Its new logo needed to not only be modernized, it had to be recognizable across a variety of media, different surfaces at different scales and different applications. In the tradition of Rand's UPS Shield and Bass's Bell, Beale kept the heart of the old logo's concept, the source of IP's products, a tree. He reduced its form, though, to its most elemental shape and then imbued it with just a touch of surprise, the triangular tree shape, was formed by the juxtaposition of an I and a P. The surrounding circle encloses the letters to stabilize the overall design, but it's still enlivened by that diagonal thrust of the tree shape. It was an homage, intentionally or not, to Maholi Naj's design for the Bauhaus Press back in 1923. The equilateral triangle ensconced within a circle is typical of the type of reductive geometry that's the mainstay of most contemporary corporate design. The robust simplicity of Beale's design made it adaptable for all types of media and collateral, including labels, cartons, trucks, and other internationally distributed materials. It was also far more suited to the unique application of stenciling on trees, the method by which the company marked them for cutting. Beale and Rogers produced a detailed corporate identity manual to guide these applications and adapted Robert Wiebe King's 1924 typeface Venus to include a medium extended style for international paper's use. It's worth noting that the logo is still in use and despite a proposed 2015 redesign, hasn't changed in the 60 years since it was first introduced. This concludes the first part of our exploration of the corporate identity culture in the 50s and 60s. In the next lecture, we'll look at some of the leading design firms and most innovative projects in the field during the 70s and 80s. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to email me at mgridley at ut.edu, text me on WhatsApp at 813-436-3323, or you can book some time on my calendar at mgridley.youcanbook.me.